All right, while everybody is uh, finding their way back to their seats, I'm going to say hello to everybody that's joining us online today. They're usually uh, somewhere between, I don't know, 10 to 25 or so people online joining us, just depending on the weather and things like that. And so we're glad that you're here online with us. Everybody say hi to everyone online. Hi, everybody. No one left out. All right, great. Uh, Friday this past week here at the church building, we gathered to celebrate the life of Joe Cruden together. And you know, part of that time together uh, in, the, in the services, we sang some songs. Sometimes that'll be worked into memorial services. And there are some songs that I think fit really well when we are just needing to witness that hope that we have in Jesus Christ. We sang victory in Jesus. You know, what a, a great reminder and what a testimony to what we believe. So I'm really thankful when we arrive at moments like that, we have a collection of songs that we can draw from. Do you realize that we have today more songs to draw from than ever before in history? They don't go away. We might stop singing some. They don't go away. We have more than ever. If you go back in history, if you go as far back as ancient Israel, you will see that they also had a collection of songs, different songs for different occasions. They called them psalms. They collected 150 of those together. That was quite a few. And they used them on different occasions. They were the songs of Israel. And the Psalter, the collection of those 150 psalms, was the songbook of the first church. It's not like we have come up with some brand new idea here. Well, just like our songs now, if you were to dig into the Psalms, you would see that there are different kinds of Psalms. There are praise Psalms. There are Psalms of lament or sadness. There are Psalms that are called wisdom Psalms that just kind of teach something. There are imprecatory Psalms, things to pray against your enemies. Imprecatory, they're called. And there are others. There are some, specifically 16 of them or so, that are decidedly about the Messiah, about Jesus. They show up in the New Testament where the writers of the New Testament are looking back at them for words about Jesus. They go back to those messianic psalms. Think about that for a second. Songs written about Jesus a thousand years before he was born, that would be like somebody back in 1023 writing 16 songs about you. That would be interesting, wouldn't it, to run across those. You know, this whole year we have been working on this theme of getting everyone's eyes on Jesus, all eyes on Jesus. And if you've been paying attention, all the series that we have been using to, to preach and, and to try to get that done have been about Jesus in some way specifically. And this morning we're going to start a new series up until Thanksgiving time. We're going to go through some of those psalms, some of those messianic psalms, the songs about Jesus. Call them the series Jesus Songs. That's not real creative, is it? And I'd like you to get your Bibles open to the Psalms. It's right in the middle of your Bible, if you have your whole Bible, or if it's in your device, it's, it's in there somewhere, all right? But we're going to look at 
Psalm 2 today. The first two Psalms, Psalm 1 and 2, introduce the whole book of Psalms. Each one of these two Psalms, 1 and 2, has the same basic message. We're going to dig into Psalm 2 today. According to Acts 4.25, it is a Psalm written by David. We'll find that out in Acts 4.25. And right away, I want to encourage you this morning, you can mark up your Bible. You have permission to do that. You can mark up your Bible. If you'll look in there at Psalm 2, you'll see that it's divided into four sections, three verses each. That's a great way to divide it up and think about it, and that's how we're going to look at it today. So I'm going to do something a little different this morning. I'm going to have a running graphic that's going to appear for us on the screen to look at. We're going to see it build as we go through today until we reach the end of Psalm 2. And then at the end, it's going to be time to make some decisions, all of us. All right? So that's where we're going. That's how it's going to be. Is everyone on board? Let's go. Psalm chapter 2, verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break apart their bonds and cast away their cords from us. So on this little chart this morning, the first thing we're going to look at is rebellion, opposition, rage against God. Why do the nations rage? That's how it starts. And I picture in my mind a riot or a mob. Could you picture that? It's pretty easy to picture that these days, isn't it? Seems like there's a lot of that going on. A whole lot of raging, a whole lot of mob and rioting. Don't those people have anything else to do with their lives? But the picture here is not just an angry mob. It is, look at it, an organized effort by world leaders against God. You could track back in history in in the Bible and you could see the places where the kings of the earth and the rulers of the earth have thrown themselves against God. Abraham had to rescue his nephew Lot when he was captured. Israel spent over 400 years in the land of Egypt as slaves. Assyria, Babylon, and later Rome all came against God's people and Since then, right up to this day, there have been groups of people, even whole countries, who have organized themselves against the people of God. This opposition is nothing new. In fact, we can expect it to continue for now. It's not just a history thing, it's a now thing. The hatred of the Jews, historically, and now is tied to this. And it is all really about, at the very heart of it, the heart of sinfulness. It is denying God's leadership and authority in our lives. That's what this is about. Verse 1 starts with this word. Why? (laughs) Why? In other words, what's the use? It's going to fall apart. The nations, the kings who, who come together to come against God, why are they doing it? Why oppose the one who's omnipotent? You kings, you can set yourself and try to overthrow his lordship. Kings can take a stand 
Entire nations can get together, and they can try, and they have, but it's all going to fall apart. I got to thinking about that question, why? And I thought, you know, I'm glad you asked that. I think I get why people do that. And it must be because they have thought, not because they thought it through, but because they don't want some outside entity telling them what they must do. Do you see it there? I don't want someone ruling me. Oh, I get why people do that. It's because there is an enemy named Satan whose goal is to kill and to steal and destroy. And so as often as he can, for as long as he can, he incites people against God. Make a note of it. The nations rage against the Lord, telling them what to do. So do individuals. Matthew chapter 11, when Jesus invites people who are tired to come to him for rest, verse 29, he says then, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. You will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let me give you a tool that you can use as a test this morning to see how you're doing at growing up in Jesus. When Jesus speaks these words in Matthew 11 and he says, take my yoke on you, are you glad for that? Are you glad to do that? Do you love that yoke or do you wish that you could take it off? You see, the yoke is an implement for getting to do what? Work. Take my work on you, Jesus is saying. Work for me. It puts control into someone else's hands and it lines you up to work. Are you glad for that? Now, if you're a person, this is a metaphor. If you're an ox, it means you're going to go plow a field. If you're a person, it's a metaphor. Jesus is inviting people to be workers in his kingdom. How do you feel about that? How do you feel about him calling all the shots for your life? That's a pretty good test of how you're doing at your growth in him. Take a look at your own sinfulness. Take a look at the things about you where you mess up, and it's all an authority issue. You need to decide if you're going to submit to God's law. If not, then it's impossible for you to please God. That's what Paul says in Romans 8. That if your mind is set on the flesh, you don't submit to God's law. Whoever lives according to the flesh cannot please God. But if you're following his lordship, then you can anticipate. There's still going to be some opposition against the Lord and against his people. The nations rage against the Lord. The way they have done that is by against raging against his people. First Peter chapter 4, verse 12, Peter tells Christians, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Paul said in 2 Timothy 3, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be what? Persecuted. While evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived, whether you can figure it out, whether you can figure out why or not, 
there are still great amounts of people conspiring together to stop the Lord's people, and that should not surprise us. Why do the nations rage? The people's plot in vain. All right, let's go back to that chart. There's going to be this rebellion. There is also, in the next part of this psalm, some words about God the Father. We start reading there in verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I like that title the psalmist uses here. He who sits in the heavens. You know, anybody who makes the choice to rebel against God might want to step back and think about that for a second. Who it is they are opposing. All these nations, peoples, kings, and rulers are earthbound. It's called gravity. They couldn't even get off the ground. Now, we live in a time in history, it's a little different than that, isn't it? We have sent people pretty far away from the earth. Some as far away as the, the, the far side of the moon. That's pretty far, 239,000 miles, give or take. 239,000 miles. That's just to the moon. Now, if you wanted to go to the sun, that would be 93 million miles. And if you were to go at the same speed that the Apollo missions went to the moon, that 24,000 miles an hour, eight times the speed of a bullet from a gun, it would take you to get to the sun at that speed three years. You'd burn up before you made it, but three years. All right, out on the edge of our solar system, since they got rid of Pluto, out on the edge of our solar system, is the planet Neptune. It is three billion miles away. Three billion miles away. Take that same speed, 24,000 miles an hour, eight times faster than a bullet from a gun. How long would it take you to get to Neptune? 90 years. Might want to pack an extra lunch for that one. Ah, but that's just the planets. Come on. Those are close to us. How about the nearest star? Proxima Centauri. You know, that is the closest star in our solar system. If you were going to go visit a star, you might want to go there first. It's 4.2 light years away. That doesn't sound too far, does it? At the speed of an Apollo moon mission, 24,000 miles an hour, eight times the speed of a bullet from a gun, how long would it take you to reach Proxima Centauri? Well, that would be 104.6 million years. That's the closest star, okay? And that's just one of billions in our galaxy, the Milky Way, and our galaxy is just one of billions of observable space. Try to get that in your mind for a second. What we call space is also known as second heaven. Our atmosphere is first heaven. On beyond that into space is second heaven. And the Bible gives us another place where God lives. It's called the third heaven. Somewhere out there beyond space is third heaven where he who sits in the heavens is. 
All right. Can you hear the nations raging? Oh, God, you better run to your bomb shelter. We're going to launch a missile at you. We're going to gather together a bunch of people. We're coming at you. Verses 4 to 6 in Psalm 2 tell us that God does three things. He who sits in the heavens. Number one, he laughs. He laughs. It is a laughter of mockery and contempt. He holds them in derision, it says. Have you ever heard God laugh? If you would like to hear God laugh, go back to Exodus 2 where Pharaoh thinks he's going to get rid of the Jewish males, throw all of those baby boys into the Nile River, drown them. And at the same time, Pharaoh's own daughter rescues one of them and raises him up as a prince in Pharaoh's court. He laughs. Read 1 Samuel 5. The Philistines have captured the Ark of the Covenant. They they cart it off in victory to Ashdod. They set it up in the temple of Dagon in great victory. And the next morning when they come to look at it, Dagon, the idol, is on his face in front of it. So they help him back up. The next morning they come to check on Dagon again and guess what? He's face down but now his hands and his head have been cut off and they're sitting on the threshold. He laughs. Read in Esther how Haman who hated the Jews, wanted to destroy all of the Jews, built a gallows in his backyard because he was going to hang Mordecai, one of the Jews he especially hated. And then in chapter 9 of Esther, guess who hangs on the gallows with his sons? The ones that he built for someone else. He laughs. Visit a well-researched story about the French philosopher Voltaire, a man who was not just a philosopher but a playwright and a prolific writer. He wrote all kinds of anti-Christian stuff in his lifetime most of his writing against Christianity and the Bible. In 1776, Voltaire made this prediction. 100 years from my day, there will not be a Bible on earth except one that is looked upon by an antiquarian curiosity seeker. 100 years, he gave it. Less than 58 years after Voltaire died and became a believer, His former residence in Switzerland, where he lived and wrote, was used by the Evangelical Society of Geneva as a storehouse for Bibles and Bible tracts and the printing press that he used to print his anti-Christian vitriol was used to print Bibles. He laughs. He who sits in the heavens laughs then he speaks he speaks in wrath <laughs> you know even when god is not angry hearing him speak is a as a terrifying thing deuteronomy chapter 5 moses is going to go up to meet with god and israel is there with him and they've been listening to the voice of god as it rumbles and roars and grows louder and you know what they say Moses, you go on ahead. You listen to God, what he has to say, and then you tell us 
That's the right attitude. But in verse 5, as God speaks to the raging nations, look at it, he's angry. It's terrifying. And what he has to say to them is a description of something he has already done. He not only laughs and speaks, he acts, he does things. He says, as for me, and this is all he needs to say, as for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. God's message about his king is all he has to say, I have set my king where he will be in charge. You know this idea that in the world there should be people who are in positions of authority, positions to tell other people what is the law and what they should do, God's distributed authority, that idea comes from God. And it is the job of others to accept that authority unless it opposes God's authority. Psalm 2 that we're sitting here looking at this morning is largely about authority. People who rebel against it and God who sets it up. But Psalm 2 isn't just about authority and it's not just about some king and it's not just about King David who wrote it. But we learn in the New Testament that this psalm is about Jesus Christ. These words are about Jesus. We're going to look at that in a moment. But let's just finish this point by saying this morning, you don't want the wrath and the fury and the terror of God. And you would do better not to rebel against his authority. And I want to tell you this morning that you need to pick a side in this. In fact, you're already on a side. And there are only two of them. And you need to choose which side you're going to be on. You don't want to be on the side that God's holding in derision. All right, verse 7, section 3. Verse 7, a brand new speaker shows up in this psalm. Someone different is now speaking to us. It's Jesus. Look at it, verse 7. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Jesus is now speaking. Acts chapter 13, Hebrews chapter 1, Hebrews chapter 5, they all come to this verse, and they quote it, and they make it very clear. The king here, the one who is speaking, is Jesus. A thousand years before Jesus was born, David wrote this psalm about God's king. But now, here on this side of the cross, it has a much deeper meaning for us. The Lord decreed it long before. The Lord, it says here, is also not just the king, but he is God's son. You are my son, it says. At least two times, remember, during the ministry of Jesus, at least two times, we've got a record of a voice from heaven saying what? This is my beloved son. Can you imagine that some of the people who heard that voice thought back to Psalm 2, hey, I've heard these words. Well, the enemies of God didn't like somebody making a claim like that because in their economy of things, that would mean that He was equal with God. Can't have that. John chapter 5, verse 18. You being a man, make yourself out to be God. At least they got that right. 
This has been God's design all along, that Jesus, who is God in the flesh, would also be king of everything. Colossians 1.17 says this about Jesus. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. You can't rightly talk about Jesus without acknowledging his authority. And so, for Jesus, that means authority over rebellious enemies. This verse that we just looked at about ruling with a a rod of iron, that gets repeated three times in the book of Revelation, that he'll rule them with a rod of iron. And it's talking about when Jesus returns in victory. It's a word of warning to those who set themselves against the Lord and against his anointed. Remember, I was speaking at the beginning about the number of individuals and and the number of even nations who have set themselves against God and against his people? William Plummer wrote about what he called one of the greatest plots ever formed against God's chosen. And he was referring to the Roman persecution of the first few centuries. It really came to a head in 303 A.D., And he proceeds then to describe the very ugly deaths of 30 Roman emperors, governors of provinces, and others who were high in office, who stood out in their persecution against Christians. He lists of all these 30 people who did that, how they came to their end, and it's not a pretty picture. His point is simple. You don't want to be on the wrong side of this. Jesus is king. You need to get that right. You need to get the chain of command right. You want to be on the right side of this. So the last part of this psalm, the last three verses, really comes down to what we're supposed to do about all this. You notice the first word in verse 10? Well, the second word in my translation. It says, now, therefore, therefore, Anytime you see the word therefore in Scripture, you need to look at what it's there for. Therefore. What is it there for? Well, it's there because rejecting God's authority is in vain. It's there because whoever does this, God holds in derision. It's there because God has set his king on Zion. It is there because of who Jesus Christ is. Wise up, kings. Be warned, rulers of the earth. You've been put on notice. But do you suppose, as we read these words this morning, that those are there just for rulers and kings? Or could it be there also for regular Joe Schmoes like you and me? Psalm 2, verse 10. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Let's go ahead and skip to that last line again. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. For all the wrath and fury, this psalm ends with a really happy promise, doesn't it? 
Blessed are those who take refuge in him. There is a way to escape the wrath of God. There is a way not to be shattered like pottery. And it all has to do, do you see it? With your attitude toward the Son of God. Listen, serve with fear, rejoice with trembling, kiss the Son. These things are all about obedience and respect. James tells us, humble yourself before the Lord and he will lift you up. So taking refuge in God means coming to him as someone who is in need. It means approaching God on his terms. It is somewhere opposite of the people who reject God's authority and lordship in their lives. It's interesting to me how this psalm ends with the same word that Psalm 1 begins with, these introductory psalms to the whole book. Psalm 1 starts with the word, blessed is the one, or blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. Blessed. Psalm 2 ends with this word, blessed are all who take refuge in the Lord. See, in Psalm 1, there are two kinds of people. There are the wicked and then there are the righteous. One is like a tree that produces fruit in its season. Everything he does prospers. The other one, it says, is like chaff that the wind blows away. He won't stand in judgment. The way of the wicked will perish. That's Psalm 1. Then we get to Psalm 2 in the end. And what do you know? There are still two groups, aren't there? There are those who rage against the Lord, those who reject his authority over them. There are those who come to him and who find in his lordship in their lives a place of refuge. And they are called people who are blessed. One group will perish under God's wrath. The other will be blessed. So here's the end of the matter. You and I have a choice to make. In fact, we have a choice to make every day when we get up for the day. Will you choose to reject his lordship in your life? Or will you choose to seek refuge in the king who gave his life for you? There will always be and there always have been two groups mentioned in scripture and not one in between. And so you have to choose this day whom you will serve. And that is the big picture of Psalm 2. I'm going to use some words that I heard a preacher give at the North American Christian Convention in in light of the book of Revelation a few years back. He said, here's the summary of the whole thing. God is coming. Choose a side. Don't be stupid. Maybe that's a kind of rough way to say it. But I think that's the message of Psalm 2. Choose the side. Choose the right side. Choose not to be among those who rage against the Lord and against his anointed. Choose instead to be the one who finds refuge in the Lord and in his lordship in your life. It's a psalm about Jesus, a Jesus song. This morning, if you haven't accepted Jesus' lordship in your life, we're asking you to look really carefully at whose side you're on. We want you to be on the Lord's side. We want you to be in a right relationship with him.
We didn't invent this. We're just the messengers. And we want to tell you that Jesus Christ gave his life for you because he wants a relationship with you. He wants you to live with him forever. You've got to understand that. If you need to make that decision today, that choice, there is a real definitive action you can make. It means saying aloud, I am ready to follow Jesus. It means saying, I believe he is king and deserves to be king in my life. It means saying, that old way of life, the one where I was rebelling against God, I'm done with it. I want to turn away from that. It means being baptized into him. And he, from that point, puts his spirit inside of you to help you in this new life, to live like you're supposed to live. That's the deal. Pick a side. If you're ready to make that choice this morning, we would love for you to step forward and say, I'm ready. You know, last week, we got to watch uh, Sue Crabb baptized into Christ. And it would be wonderful this morning if we could say, and here comes someone else ready to join, ready to become one of his. If that's you, in just a second here, I'm going to ask you to walk to the front. Uh, we're going to sing a song when we conclude, and uh, I'll be here at the front. Just come speak to me about that. You know what? If that's you, but you aren't making that choice yet because you've got some questions or you've got some things that are hindering you from doing that, we still love you, and we want you here, and we want you to hear it again and again, and we want you to finally reach that point where you say, yeah, I believe and I'm ready. If you're not there yet this morning, but you would like some help, understanding God's word and some encouragement to get there. We've got no qualms about saying we want to help you with that. Let's stand up together. Let's pray together. Let's make good choices. Father, thank you for these words about Jesus written so long ago that pointed Israel to him before they even knew it that the writers of the New Testament looked back on and said, this is Jesus, this is the King, this is the one we follow. Father, thank you for your great plan that you spell out in so many different ways for us to see. Thank you today that once again we've got this moment, this opportunity to make the right choice and I pray Father, that that's what all of us will do as we daily choose for you to be Lord in our lives. Or as some wrestle with that today, Father, be here now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.